The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Today is part three of our series on uh, prayer and fasting. And I hope you're getting something out of these messages. And I hope your fast, if you're participating with us, is going well. I hope you're seeing breakthrough in your life as you are uh, committing to this really disciplined prayer. You know, I don't know if there is any better gauge of a Christian's spiritual temperature than to look at his or her prayer life. The frequency of prayer, the fervency of prayer, and the focus of those prayers. Charles Spurgeon has been quoted as saying, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. And I would say amen to that. And that's my hope today that through this passage and with the help of the Holy Spirit that we would learn to pray and that we would become more disciplined as we leave here today in our prayer lives. How many believe that there is power in prayer? James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That is still the case, by the way, today. There's power in prayer. And I just believe this church, if we're going to see lasting change in our church, in our homes, and in our community, we must be a people of prayer. Are you with me? So today I want to take us back to the fundamentals as we look at Matthew chapter 6 and Jesus teaching on this vital subject. If you're taking notes, I want to begin by talking about the picture of prayer. You know, there are a lot of different ideas around the world about what prayer is, but I want to go back to the Bible and try to define really what prayer is. Number one, prayer is simply this in its most basic form. Prayer is direct communication with the God of the universe. What a weighty sentence. Amen. Prayer is direct communication with the God of the universe. Psalm 17, 6 says, I'll call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my words. What a privilege it is to have the ear of the Lord. Amen. But prayer goes beyond communication. When Jesus teaches us to pray, he tells us to address God as our Father. Which tells me that prayer is not just communication, but it's also communion with our God. You could say it like this, that prayer is relational. Which means that I ought to utilize prayer, even when I don't particularly need something, to cultivate my relationship with the Lord. Now, who is it that gets to pray to God like this? It's not everyone who gets to pray, our Father who is in heaven. It's His children, His elect, those who belong to His kingdom, those who are in Christ and have been born of the Spirit. And friends, what a privilege it is to not only go to God as, uh, you know, in prayer, but to go to Him as our heavenly Father and commune with Him. There's one more facet of prayer I want to touch on as we paint this picture of what prayer is. And that is this. Prayer is warfare. Prayer is a means of warfare, which is incredibly important because I don't know if you know this, but the Christian life is a fight of faith. 
We have a real adversary. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul reminds us that we are not defenseless in this spiritual battle. That we have the strength of the Lord on our side. And one of the weapons that we have to stand in that strength, aren't you thankful He hasn't left us to stand alone? We can stand not in our own strength, but in the power of the Lord. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And he challenges us to take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, that we do stand. And you, then he talks about each uh, of the elements of the armor that, that we have, our spiritual armor. And then in verse 18, he says this, praying always. Don't ever stop praying. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now here's what I know that we are to pray always, not just for communication, not just for communion, but also for, as a means of warfare to fight the good fight of faith. Remember Paul. At the end of his life, he's writing to his apprentice, Timothy. We find this in the book of 2 Timothy. And he writes these words as he's looking back over his life. He says, I fought the good fight. How did Paul fight the good fight? In many ways, but especially through prayer. Paul was a prayer warrior. In old church, how we need to be prayer warriors. He said, I fought the good fight. I finished my course and I've kept the faith. And some of that is owing to prayer. You know, I believe that the reason that we aren't more serious about prayer in the world today is that we have a wrong view of prayer. We see prayer primarily, especially in this country, as a means of getting something from God. We treat God sometimes like He's our cosmic bellhop. And He's just at our beck and call, right? And so that's not a good view of prayer. Certainly we go to God with our needs, but that's not solely what prayer is for. It is communion. It is constant communication. It involves praising Him and thanking Him, not just asking Him for things. See, this is why on a, when you have something happen in our country like a 9-11 terrorism attack, that the churches will be filled up and prayer meetings will be full. But once things turn back to somewhat where they are normal, guess what? The pews are empty again and prayer meetings are desolate. Because we see prayer as primarily just when we need something really big, we go to God. And I hope that you don't see prayer like that today. This needs to be something that we practice all of the time. Continually, we need to be praying people. That's the picture of prayer. Secondly, I want to look at the place of prayer. In other words, where do we pray? And also in this, I want to look behind the motive. What is the motive of prayer? Going back to verse 5 in our text, the word says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Have you ever known anybody like that? 
And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you go, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So we're told here, friends, to not be like the hypocrites. But this is more about motive than it is location. See, the Pharisees loved to pray in the synagogues. But they didn't love to pray for the right reasons. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be heard. They wanted to look religious. They wanted to impress people with their big uh, religious vocabulary. Have you ever known anybody like that? And here's the bottom line. These hypocrites, these Pharisees were not after the heart of God in praying. They were after the applause of men. And Jesus says, oh, they've received their reward in full. And here's what this tells me. And we can apply this to many areas of life. It is possible, hear me, to do the right thing for the wrong reason. If you look back at the preceding verses in Matthew chapter 6, you will see that Jesus says that we can actually give to the needy for the wrong reasons. You can be charitable for the wrong reasons. And we see this all the time. People who do good for somebody else and they want the world to know it because they're looking for the applause of men. Then you read past the text we're in today and Jesus says you can fast for the wrong reasons. You can fast so to be seen by men and to look, uh, you know, super spiritual. And friends, if you fast for those reasons, you have just gone hungry. I hate to tell you. There's no other benefit. So I would suggest just not fasting. Just keep on eating if you're not going to fast for the right reasons. And here's what I want you to understand. Christ does not just want us to do the right things. He wants us to do the right things with the right heart. So Jesus says that when we pray, we're to grow to that prayer closet, that private place, and we're to uh, pray uh, to Him in secret. Which begs the question, are we being unbiblical when we have corporate prayer like we've had over the last couple of weeks? And I would say emphatically, no, that is not unbiblical. And we know this because we see this practice uh, throughout the New Testament. Let me give you a couple examples. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 23, Peter and John are just released from custody. They were uh, arrested for doing miracles in the name of Jesus and preaching and teaching in his name. They're arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin, and they're threatened. You cannot preach or teach in the name of Jesus. And then they're released, and we pick up here in Acts chapter 4 verse 23. And it says that they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, watch this, they lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything within them. And they began just to pray. They lifted their voice together. So corporate prayer is not wrong. We have this another example in Acts chapter 12. Peter is rescued by an angel from prison. And in verse 12, it says after he's released, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. How many know there is a certain power that happens? There's a certain precious spirit that is here when we come together as the saints and pray together. Listen, I know that you can pray at home. I understand that. 
But there is something special that happens when we come together in the power of agreement and faith and we pray one for another. So corporate prayer is certainly not wrong, but the motive has to be right in these occasions. Let me give you a good rule to kind of test your motive. Don't do in public what you're not willing to do in private. Here's what I mean. If you're not willing to get on your face before God at home and cry out to the Lord on a daily basis, you'd be better not off not to come here and act spiritual. And, oh, I just love prayer, Pastor. Oh, you know, don't, don't do that. This is one of my pet peeves when I was a, a worship leader for, you know, for many years. And I would see um, some people, if they were on the platform with us, Man, they would, during worship, they would just cry and, oh, they just sing their hearts out. But if it, if it was their off week and they're in the congregation and somebody else is leading, they're as dry as a bone. Which tells me this is not genuine worship up here. Because if you're a worshiper, you'll worship him like that in your home, in the pew or on the platform. You'll bless him at all times. His praise will continually be in your mouth. This is not a performance. He didn't. He doesn't need you to perform. He's looking for people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. So don't do in public what you're not willing to do in private. So that's the place of prayer. We need to pray privately and we need to pray corporately with all the right motives. The number three, let's look at the pace of prayer. In other words, when do we pray? And there's two facets to this. Number one... We need to pray at specific, dedicated times. I'll ask people about their prayer life and they will uh, say to me, Well, Pastor, you know, I, I don't really spend just dedicated time, but I, I pray throughout the day. Which is great that you pray throughout the day. But we need to also have committed, specific times in prayer. This is the practice of the early church and this is the practice of Jesus himself. Luke 5, 16, it says that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places in pray. This isn't a one-time occurrence. Jesus would often go to desolate places and pray. And, and how many know that we might need prayer even a little more to Jesus? Amen? If Jesus needs to pray, how much more do we need prayer? Luke six twelve. in these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray And all night he continued in prayer to God. When's the last time that we have all night just cried out to the Lord? We need to have these specific dedicated times of prayer. The great reformer Martin Luther proposes that, uh, that we pray twice daily. He says to let prayer be the first business in the morning and the last business at night. I think that's a good rule of thumb, don't you? As part of this model prayer, think about this. Jesus asked us to pray for our daily bread. And this is why I say I think prayer ought to be in the morning at least, this specific prayer. Because why would you pray for your daily prayer, your, your bread for or your daily bread, your bread for that day in the evening? The day's gone. Pray for it in the morning. Amen. Go to the Lord. I, there's nothing like starting your day in prayer. I get up early anyways, but I try to get up 20 to 30 minutes, sometimes an hour before I have to be up. Because there's no sweeter time to me than to start my day with prayer. I'm telling you, it's sometimes from 4 to 5, sometimes from 5 to 6 is the sweetest hour in my house. I love spending quiet time with the Lord. 
It'll revolutionize your life if you'll start your day off that way. So we know from the New Testament that we need this regular focused time of prayer. But then the Bible, we talked about this Wednesday, calls us to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. We need to do better at that as well, don't we? And pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I love that. People are saying, man, I really wish I knew what the will of God was. I'll tell you what it is. Right now, whatever season you're in, whatever situation it is, it is that you would rejoice. And that you would give thanks even in the midst of this circumstance. And that you would pray at all times. And we talked about this Wednesday. I love this thought that, you know, this is a mindfulness of God at all times. This is an awareness of the Lord's presence by His Holy Spirit at all times. It's precious to know as you're going throughout your day that He is with me. That He has not abandoned me. I didn't have to leave Him at home. That the Spirit of God goes with me. That He is a God who is near. And then this is an awareness of that presence. It is a communication continually with God throughout the day. See, every prayer doesn't mean you have to fall on your face and pray this big long prayer. Throughout my day, I just converse with God. If I'm going into a meeting, I'll say, God, give me wisdom. If I'm frustrated, I'll say, God, help me not to kill this person. I'll say, Lord, let me be slow to speak and quick to listen. When I'm dealing with my children, which can at times be frustrating, I'll say, Lord, give me wisdom and help me to Handle the situation in a way that helps them to love you and see what they've done wrong and help them to want to follow you. Just through the day and then throughout the day, we, we need to get better at this. This is where the rejoicing at all times come in. See, we, we have this tendency to see the negative, but when you wake up, the first thing you ought to do is say, God, hey, it's another day. Thank you. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. When you get in a vehicle to, to go to church or to work, thank Him for the, the vehicle and the gas that goes in it. The money to buy, purchase the fuel. Amen? When you kiss your kids at night, if you have children, just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given me this blessing. Whatever it is, just begin throughout your day to thank God as you're walking into your, the office. You may not love your job, but you ought to just thank Him. You ought to thank Him because, you know, the alternative is that you don't have a job. And so just thank Him that you have work. And when you work with frustrating people, thank you. Thank the Lord that He has called you to be a light into a dark world. Thank Him for favor. Thank Him that He's for you. Amen. And if He's for you, who can be against you? That's what it is. We're to pray that way all of the time. We're to pray without ceasing. So that's the, that, that's the pace of prayer. We pray at specific times and we pray all the time. Constantly in communion with God. Number four, the pattern of prayer. Here in Matthew chapter 6, we find this incredible master's class on prayer. And this is, by the way, not a prayer that we're told to pray verbatim, by the way. All right? It's not a prayer that we're told to pray verbatim, but it does serve as a model for a prayer that would be effective and pleasing to the Lord. You know, um, I, I, one of uh, a song that I used to sing when I, I would lead worship, I really liked the song. 
It, it says you don't have to know how to pray. All you have to know how to say is Jesus. And I, I believe there's some truth in that. That someone who doesn't know the Lord and, and just calls upon the name of the Lord to save them or to help them. I believe the Lord hears that. They, somebody newly saved who doesn't know Scripture yet. I believe the Lord offers lots of grace. But I think for seasoned believers that there is a right way to pray. I believe there, there are many ways we can pray. I mean, there's intercessory prayer. There's just prayers of warfare. Uh, and this is just a general prayer that we find in Matthew chapter 6. And this will really help us. This is the shape or the substance of what our prayers ought to be. So don't miss this. Number one, we'll start with the address. He, Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven. Now we've talked about this a bit, but let me say this. When we approach God as Father, when, when you think about what you're saying, you think of the connotations there, you are reminded of His incredible love for us. That we have a relationship with Him by virtue of our position in Jesus Christ. When you call God Father, you're reminded that He sent His only begotten Son to die for us so that we could be brought into His family and that we could call Him now Father. You're reminded when you call Him Father that you can trust Him. Doesn't that sound a, set a great foundation for your prayer? When you call Him Father, you can just say, Oh, I know I can trust Him. I'm not just praying to Him as God. I'm praying to Him as my Father. And I trust He hears my prayers. Now, let me say one thing. Yes, we go to God as our Father. But don't be too lax in your approach to God. I know that He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I, I know all of that. But there's this message going around where people will say, Hey, just talk to him like he's your buddy. Like, hey, Jesus, what's up, bro? <laughs> Listen to me. I believe we still need to approach the throne of grace with a reverence. He's not just my buddy. He's king of kings and lord of lords. We need to have respect when we approach his throne in a reverence. Again, he's not impressed with our religious vocabulary. So I'm not saying we go to him with these large words and, and talk in old English and all. He's not impressed by that. We go to him in a real authentic way, but with great reverence. I mean, go back and look how Isaiah approached the Lord. Look how Paul, when, when Paul writes about his prayers, look how, look how he approaches the, you know, God. Look at Jesus while he was on this earth, when he would pray, how he would approach God. There's a reverence there. And we need to remember that. So just a side note there. So don't get too lax in that approach to God, but go to him as your father. And then we come to the first petition found in verse nine. Hallowed be your name. Now, that is an antiquated word. How many of y'all use that this week? Hallowed. Hallowed right. Uh, one of you. OK. Um, so here's the basic meaning of this word. It, it has the idea of holiness or to be set apart. Now, listen to me. God's name is already holy. His name is already perfect. His name is already set apart. So we're not praying, Lord, make your name holy. What are we praying then when we say, hallowed be or holy be your name? We're praying, Lord, let your name be regarded throughout the earth as holy. When, when you start your prayer like this, Father who's in heaven, 
and you pray, hallowed be your name, you're setting your mind on the things of God right at the, the forefront of your prayers. You're saying, God, this world is about you. It's not about me. This life is about you. It's not about me. Lord, today, as I go about my day, I don't want to be about my own. I don't want my own name to be made famous. But Lord, I want people through my good works to look to you and worship your name and regard your name as holy. This is a desire from our hearts to treasure the name of God above all things, to reverence his name, to honor his name. And then there's another dimension to this. This is uh, uh, Augustine and Luther brought this out in some of their writings. And Tim Keller brings this out in his book on prayer. And they said that uh, that prayer for the hallowing of God's name is a request that more and more people would honor God and call upon his name. When I'm praying in the morning, God, let your name uh, be reverenced. What I'm saying is, God, let more people call upon you as Lord and Savior today that they may honor your name. And I see this hallowing of God's name as a foundation to the rest of our prayer. Because when we start this way in our praying, it's unreal how God-centered the rest of our prayer becomes. Because we have a tendency, don't we, to be very self-centered in our praying so that's where we start. And then we move on to this phrase in verse 10. Your kingdom come. Now I believe there's two senses in which we're praying this here. There's an inward sense and an outward petition here. Inwardly, this is a desire for God's lordship in the lives of Christians. A longing for the reigning of Christ in our hearts and lives. It's a reminder that whatever we're engaged in, we're to do for the glory of God. We're to be about kingdom business. Because we forget sometimes that that we are citizens of heaven and we live like this is our home. So we're reminded we need to invest with our time and talent and treasure into the kingdom of God. But there's a second dimension here. I think there's another cry here. Right now, see, we know the kingdom in part, don't we? We have a foretaste, if you will, of God's kingdom. But how many know that the Lord's coming back again? And when He does, we will know the kingdom in fullness. So you know what this prayer is ultimately? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. That ought to be the cry of our hearts. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. How many are longing for that day? Amen. So we're to pray for this quick return. The second part of verse 10 says, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, don't miss this. This prayer here is an expression of the desire to do God's will. Listen to me. Even when it's not what we want. Even when His will does not line up with what we would choose for our own lives. It's important to understand, see, that there are at least two facets when it comes to the will of God. You need to know this. Number one, God has a sovereign will that we would call His purpose, His ultimate purposes in the universe. And listen to me, these sovereign purposes will happen. You can't change the sovereign will of God. I cannot change the sovereign will of God. The devil cannot change the sovereign will of God. Job 42.2, Job says, I know that you can do all things, and watch this, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord 
that will stand. Romans 8, 28. And we know uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called what? According to His purpose. There's nothing you can do to mess that up. God's sovereign purposes are going to happen. No matter what decisions we make, His ultimate purpose will be accomplished. But there's another facet of His will that we could call His desire or His commanding will. For instance... What's the Bible say? That it's his desire that none should perish. But we know from the Bible that people will perish. Because there are those who will reject the gospel. This is how God's will is done in heaven. It's not just his sovereign will that's done in heaven. But you know how the angels do his will? They not only do his sovereign will, but they do his commanding will joyfully and quickly. Psalm 103.20 Bless the Lord, O you his angels. You mighty ones, watch this, who do His Word, obeying the voice of His Word. So this again, it's a desire for God's Lordship. Let us as believers gladly and joyfully and quickly obey the Word of the Lord and His statutes. Now here's what this means. Even when His will, His commanding will is tough or costly... Even when it may include suffering, we're to gladly bear that cup for the sake of his ultimate purpose. This is evident so clearly in Jesus' own life. Remember right before Jesus' arrest in the garden, what's he say? He knows what's coming and he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. You know that there are times we don't understand that that God may have us in a particular season of suffering for a greater purpose. It may be to grow us. It may be that in that moment we're uh, an example or uh, able to, to reach somebody else who we wouldn't be able to reach otherwise. And there's nothing wrong with praying that God would remove us from those circumstances as long as we pray like Jesus prayed and say, hey, but not my will, yours be done. You might remember the Apostle Paul who had this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. Three times he asked the Lord to remove it from him. And God said no. And Paul was then fine with that. He probably didn't like it. It was uncomfortable for him, whatever it was. But he gladly was willing to do, even in the toughest of circumstances, the will of the Lord. So... That needs to be the heart when we pray that, God, your will be done. And then we move into verse 11. See how God-centered this prayer is? We move to verse 11. Now watch this. Don't, don't miss this. I know I'm saying that a lot. I just don't want you to miss anything. So, Give us this day our daily bread. Augustine points out, I love this, that this petition for daily bread... Is not a cry for luxuries. It's a cry for necessities. Okay, now you're going to have to think through some of this. uh, Because this isn't what we hear a lot preached today. But we realize from the first part of this prayer that God is our portion. That He is our wealth. That He is our happiness. That the world will never satisfy our hearts. So when we're praying this way, we're going to not want the world. We're going to want more of God. But we do want our needs met. Amen? 
Proverbs 30, we find this prayer in verses 7 and 8. Go with me there real quick if you have your Bible. Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 8. We're almost done here. This is a prayer. It says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not before to, to me, not before I die. Now, if we were going to ask two things today, if you were to ask Americans this, it would probably be a trip to Cancun and a new car, a new boat or whatever. But here's what this prayer is for. Remove, number one, remove far from me falsehood and lying. Because we all have this tendency to embellish and make ourselves look better than we are. To falsify things, to keep ourselves out of trouble. That's what an honest prayer. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. And watch this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is what? Needful for me. Lest, here's why, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of the Lord. Let me break this down for you. When we pray this way, we have an accurate view of our own hearts. I think it's an arrogant prayer to say, Lord, make me rich. You don't know the tendencies of your own heart or human nature. And even though we're saved, we know that we still fight with this flesh. Paul makes that very clear. We talked about this over and over in Galatians. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having money. But don't let that be your desire. Here's what this prayer is about. If I become rich, this is someone who knows the tendencies of the human heart. I'll become so comfortable that I won't see a need for you. And I'll say, who is the Lord? And this is why Jesus says it's, it's, it's hard for a, a, a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Alright? But then, Lord, if I don't have anything, I might be tempted to steal or to hurt somebody or, or worse, to put bread on my table and feed myself and my children. So, Lord, would you give me my daily bread? And if God wants to give you more, so be it. And I know there's a, you know, that we could say, well, I want, I want him to make me rich so I can just pay off your church. And I would say a hearty amen to that. And I, and we can help missionaries and we can fund this. And that's good and dandy. But realize the frailty of your flesh. If God wants you to do that, be fine, be fine with it. Here, here's what he's called us to do when he's meeting our daily needs. If you have a dollar left over, give somebody the dollar or a portion of it. Bless, you know, if you can't bless others with $10, you won't bless them. Bless them when you have a hundred or a thousand. It actually gets harder to give the more money you have, believe it or not. We need to pray this way. God, give me my daily breads. There's nothing wrong with going to God for our needs. Some, some people have trouble with this. Listen, God is eager and waiting. He says we receive not because we ask not. We should take our needs to the Lord in prayer. We should pray according to His will. And we should pray not in a demanding way, but in a reverent way. Alright? Verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. This petition has to do with our relationship with God and our relationship with others. Regular confession. This is so important. Regular confession of our sin and our sinful tendencies is imperative. Here's why. It reminds us of our constant need for the Lord. 
Because if you don't do this, here's what will happen. You'll begin to elevate yourself. And you'll put yourself, because you're now so spiritual, above other people. And you will not extend mercy to others. So it's important that we pray that and we confess our sins to the Lord as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Because listen to me, when you or I do not forgive other people, you know what we're entreating God to do? Not forgive us. I want you to hear me. Prayers that come from bitter hearts are a stench to heaven. When I was studying this week, I reached out to some people that I know have bitter hearts. Never heard back. That's all right. But I'm I'm praying for them because it it bothers me because people don't understand this. This is why reconciliation in the church is so important. And we get bitter and we think we're better than everybody else. We don't forgive. We don't try to find this reconciliation. And what happens, our worship is stifled and our prayers are stifled. It's a stench to heaven. If you have unforgiveness for any reason in your heart today, let it go. Listen, don't say I'm working on it. Forgiveness is instantaneous. Well, pastor, you don't know what he or she has done to me. Do you know what you've done to the Lord? And upon confession, your sins are as far as the east is from the west. So when you're saying... When you're refusing to forgive, you're saying to God, it's unwise to forgive somebody who's really offended you. And you will not be forgiven. And your prayers will do nothing. Make this a part of your life. Listen, most challenging part of ministry probably for me, because I have people over and over who cut me and cut me. And it's not the people out there, it's the people in here. I don't mean this specific church, but I just mean within the church. Criticize, complain, grumble. And I have to go to prayer daily and say, God, help me not to resent them because I've criticized, complained and grumbled as well. See, I've got that's why we've got to walk in the implications of the gospel continually. Last phrase. Lead us not into temptation. This last petition, but deliver us from evil. Now, we know, don't we, that God cannot tempt. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. However, you remember when in in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is um, led by who? The Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God's not the one tempting, but Jesus is being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So God does not tempt us, but He does allow us at times to be tempted. But here's the great news, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So you can't say, when you, uh, you, I I don't like the phrase, "I, I fell into sin. You and I cannot say, well, I just couldn't help myself. If you're a Christian, there's always a way out. He says, but with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So here's, I think, the heart of this prayer that we would not be overcome by temptation. And you ought to pray this every day. Because, see, I I have to pray this because I know the tendencies of my heart. 
Yes, my heart's bent towards pleasing God, but I know the weakness of my flesh. And so I pray every day, Lord, let me serve you today. Help me to resist. I know there's an enemy out there who is out to kill, to steal, and destroy. Lord, help me not to be overcome by temptation. Help me to be strong in the faith, to stand strong in you. That's the prayer. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.